everyone. Welcome to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast, the first of 2024. I'm excited to share two new findings that came out at the end of 2023 that didn't quite make it into the yearly summary of research because they released in late December. In case you didn't hear the recap of the 2023 year of science, you can read it on our website or you can listen to the latest podcast, which was December 28th, to hear it. Now, it's not comprehensive, so I If I miss something, you got to forgive me, but the goal was to give you the highlights. Past summaries have included the details and it just droned on and on and I'm listening to the feedback and trying to keep it shorter. So what happened at the very end of December? Well, two new things, both important but not necessarily similar. On the first hand, severe, challenging, and dangerous behaviors. What do we do about them? How do we predict them? Now, I'm not talking about hand flapping or toe walking or lip smacking or fidgeting. Those are not dangerous behaviors. And frankly, thank you to many self-advocates that have rightly pointed out that these behaviors may be soothing and may not necessarily be the targets of interventions. On the other hand, let's think about things like self-injury and aggression, both aggression to self and aggression to others. Those need to be predicted and prevented for safety reasons. In a new paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, data from the Autism Inpatient Collection was used to help better understand what precedes these severe and dangerous behaviors. The Autism Inpatient Collection is a group of four hospitals who admit people with autism who actually need hospitalization because of the severity of those behaviors, and because whatever they need requires more intense treatment than what can be done at home or on an outpatient basis. So these are very dangerous and very severe behaviors. What are these behaviors, you may ask? The paper focused on aggression. This could be self-aggression or self-injury, injury towards others, or emotional dysregulation. Clinicians actually noted these behaviors and recorded them. How were they defined? They included behavior causing injury to harm or to others, to self, motor movements that result in injury or have the potential to inflict injury, forceful contact with another person, perseverative agitation, rapidly escalating intense or negative affect and difficulty calming down. Those last two are emotional dysregulation, and they can also include crying, yelling, threatening, grimacing, growling, or homicidal or suicidal statements. But so what? So you observe them fine. But what can you do to predict them in an objective, standardized, and quantitative way? This particular study, which appeared in JAMA, aimed to find out what physiological predictors to severe and dangerous behaviors were using biosensors. Don't worry, these biosensors are no more invasive than an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or some other wearable that records heart rate, skin conductance, which measures autonomic activity associated with emotion and regulation, and motor activity. So if you're flailing your arms or your legs, this skin conductance is kind of like what you've seen on TV as the lie detectors. But of course, we're not trying to figure out if someone's lying. We're trying to measure autonomic nervous system activity. So before the onset of an aggressive behavior, 
Is there any change in these biological metrics that can be recorded and how far ahead of time can they be recorded? Again, the study was done in an inpatient clinic, but that's not always when these behaviors occur. Today, ASF is announcing the new profound autism mechanism grants that we recently awarded, and one of these will be using biosensors in a classroom to help alert teachers of the impending behavior, and also to develop a program to intervene before the behavior even takes place. But without getting into that study, this study has data, so let's focus on the results. And also, most of the individuals in these psychiatric inpatient clinics have some sort of aggression, which is probably what landed them in the hospital to begin with. So the study didn't just look at whether or not they could predict aggression, but what combination of these measures best predicted aggressive behavior and when. They used or tested different mathematical equations, which honestly aren't that interesting to most of us and probably isn't that conducive to me explaining in a podcast. But if you're interested in the math and the statistics and the approach, I'll post a link to the paper in the podcast summary. It's open access, so you can read it and peruse it yourself, including all of the statistics and all the approaches in not just the article, but also the supplements. Thank you to the journal or the funder, whoever made it open access. All in all, 70 people, mostly men, of course, because this is autism, exhibited over 6,500 aggressive behaviors across all the studies included. So they had lots of data. They found that using these biosensors was able to predict aggressive behaviors up to three minutes ahead of the behavior. High-intensity episodes were more likely to to be predicted compared to mid- and low-intensity episodes. The worse the aggression, the more able to be predicted, which I think is probably an advantage. In a commentary that accompanied the article, two psychologists who treat individuals with severe aggression, both to themselves and others, which they combined into the analysis into one aggression metric. The psychologists explain why these findings and other findings that were more descriptive than quantitative that had also been published showed a link between physiological predictors and behaviors. Why are they so important? Why is this research so critical? By having that three-minute prediction window before the aggression behavior occurs, you can identify the antecedent of the behavior, or what comes before, as well as what happens after the behavior. Researchers can then look at the data and predict why the behavior is occurring and why the person is engaging in it. Is it to gain attention or to items they cannot express they need? Remember, half of them were minimally verbal. Or is it to escape something? These aggressive behaviors may also be linked to sensory challenges. Once that's determined, the environment can be changed. If they bang their head to gain attention so that they can alert caregivers of their needs, they can be taught alternative strategies like poking or pointing that doesn't cause self-harm. There's clearly more work to be done, and ASF is happy that this field is being expanded. This study didn't really look at the behavioral antecedents or why, just the physiological markers that predicted the behaviors. Now, this was also a clinical setting, not a naturalistic setting. But the technology can provide an understanding of complex cases where the why is not as clear. Sometimes it can be clear, sometimes it's not. Further research can predict on an individual level what the triggers are and improve outcomes. 
So this is one in a line of important research studies that uses objective, wearable, non-invasive methods to predict and stop dangerous behaviors. Thank you to researchers at Northeastern University, including Matt Goodwin, and to the leaders of the Autism Inpatient Collection, including but not limited to Matt Siegel and Carla Mazewski for helping these individuals and their families who require sometimes the highest level of support at times. Okay, the second finding. You know I've been very outspoken on the issue of language in autism, specifically, should we be using person-first or identity-first language? Is, this, is it co-morbid or is it co-occurring? The philosophy of ASF has always been that there's no one language, that no one word should be banned because along with the diversity of the autism spectrum, there are a diversity of perspectives. This has also been shown in data where there's not an overwhelming preference and sometimes it depends on the relationship to autism and the intellectual ability of the person. Some people see it as an identity, others see it as a disability. In any case, if there is stigma associated with certain words, let's get to what that is and address it and not eliminate particular words totally from our vernacular. Well, that's exactly what Desiree Jones and Noah Sasson from UT Dallas did and published at the end of 2023, and I'm really so thankful that they did this experiment. They set something up where they gathered college undergraduates. Remember, when you, if you were a college undergraduate in introductory psychology and you had to participate in a certain number of experiments, well, they took advantage of this opportunity. And they asked these college undergraduates about diagnostic labels. These included things like person with autism, autistic person, person with schizophrenia or schizophrenic person, and also person with a general clinic, clinical disorder or person with a clinical diagnosis. So this allowed for multiple things. One, the comparison of person first versus identity first language, and also potential prejudices or stigma against autism compared to schizophrenia, compared to a more general clinical diagnosis or disorder. While autism tends to be associated with violent behavior, schizophrenia really even is more so on that level. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Dateline, Law and Order, or even read a book where a person with schizophrenia does not exhibit some sort of violence. In fact, a study in 2021 showed that person-first language in schizophrenia, rather than identity-first language in schizophrenia, is more helpful to clinicians. You shouldn't use the word schizophrenic. In other words, you should use person with schizophrenia. This is unlike autism, where there's a debate over person with autism versus autistic person. However, in this particular study, college students did not show any differences in measures of stigma or prejudice between person first or identity first language for either autism or schizophrenia. However, both of these, autism and schizophrenia, the stigma and prejudice was higher for, the for these conditions rather than general clinical diagnosis. The two more specific labels of autism and schizophrenia could trigger stereotypes based on information or even misinformation based on personal experience. The general clinical disorder or condition can mean anything, and it can mean different things to different people. The responses on autism versus schizophrenia were more slanted towards fear and danger in those with schizophrenia and prejudice against those with schizophrenia. Now, the representations of those with autism that the undergraduates elicited were really variable. 
I mean, duh, think about it. Think about the broad spectrum of autism and these undergraduates have different perceptions and experiences across the spectrum. People are getting it, it, that it's a broad spectrum and some people think of it differently than others. As far as schizophrenia goes, it's pretty consistently portrayed as negative in the mainstream media. I was the other day thinking about that episode of ER, if you remember that show, where an undiagnosed person with schizophrenia went into the ER and ended up killing intern Lucy and nearly killing John Carter because he was having schizophrenic hallucinations. Remember that one? It's not necessarily an accurate description of all people with schizophrenia, either as criminal minds. But then again, neither is the media representation of autism. The one kind of neutral representation of schizophrenia that I remember is the movie A Beautiful Mind, and that may be more realistic. All right, I'm kind of digressing because this study doesn't try to address where stigma comes from, and it does, but it does not come from using person-first or identity-first language. We should still respect people's preferences because internalized stigma from the use of an unpreferred term is worth considering. It does reinforce why people, regardless of language, are hesitant to diagnose an autism or schizophrenia diagnosis. I hope this reinforces the idea that we should be respectful of people's preferences about person-first versus identity-first language. And also, we should really reconsider and rethink where these stereotypes are coming from and why there's any sort of prejudice or stigma at all. Thank you for listening and talk to you next week.